0: My name is Stephanie. I'm the lead pastor here. I also, hello, thank you, Patrick. I would also like to extend a welcome to anyone who's here for the, one of the first few times. We're so glad that you're with us. Um, okay, let's do the poll. Who are the people who love boating? Where are you, boating people? Okay, who's no boats for me, I'll say on dry land. Anyone kind of in the, in the middle? That's like the most Minnesotan thing ever. I'm in the middle. Okay, that's fine. Um, I'm actually in the middle as well. Okay, Minnesotan. I get motion sick. Okay, so this is just this huge bummer for me because I love all of the above. I love oceans, I love lakes, I love rivers. I love getting the chance to boat on them, but I have to take like prescription medication. Like it's that bad. And it's getting worse as I get older. Like if I like walk a little too fast, I could get like a just momentary, like (laughs) it's that bad. So if you're with me in that and the motion sickness, like, you know, we can have a little like support group about that because it's getting worse. But thankfully there is some medicine that helps me because I love it. I love it. I love the chance to get out on the water. And I love how, uh, how beautiful the combination of the water and the scenery. And, and I just love it. And I love that we live in Minnesota for that reason. Now, here's the thing that I want to point out today. Is that whether or not you all see water and think positive thoughts, which I think many of us do, we are people who have been through a time that people have been using a metaphor that I think, um, I will say, it like shifts this concept of my love for water. And that is this. Throughout these last two years of the COVID chaos and all that we've been through, this metaphor of a storm on the ocean has been one that has come up. So maybe you've heard this, maybe you haven't. The pandemic and everything that came with it is like a storm at sea, people have said. And it's such an unusual storm because it's one of the first ones, at least in my lifetime, where like the whole entire world is experiencing this metaphorical storm at sea, but not in the same way. And so the quote that I've heard over and over is that we're all in the same stormy ocean, but we're not in the same boat. We're all in the same stormy ocean, but we're not in the same boat. And I think that makes a lot of sense. Maybe that makes sense to you too. These last couple of years took a different toll on different folks, right? And and you might be able to name the things that you lost. You might be able to name the deepest challenges that you faced. And maybe even some things that you learned that were even positive things. But you can probably name other people in your life who've had even deeper challenges and an even deeper struggle. Because while we're all in the same stormy ocean, we're not all in the same boat. And this has shed some different light for me on this theme throughout Scripture. And I remember learning about this uh, years ago and thinking, don't ruin water and oceans and lakes for me. But the reality is, is that when oceans and the sea comes up in Scripture, it's not always in a positive way. When, when large bodies of water are mentioned in Scripture, uh, sometimes even called the waters, right? It's like this ominous thing. If you notice in Scripture, rarely the ocean or the sea or the lake is talked about as like a tranquil place to get away on vacation. Very rarely is it this beautiful aspect of scenery or this way that we get to just enjoy nature. Even though that is true, when it's brought up in Scripture, oftentimes large bodies of water represent chaos, represent struggle, represent brokenness, sometimes even evil. And when you keep that story, that, that when you keep that in mind when you're reading the stories, it can kind of shed new light on these stories that you're reading. So I'm not trying to ruin... Our love for the lake and the sea. Please don't, don't t- take me that way. But but recognize when you're reading scripture, sometimes there's themes and meaning that we might miss. And I think that the waters or the chaos that's represented by the ocean and the waters is missed on us. For instance, the first two books, two verses in the in the very beginning of the Bible, in Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. But verse 2 says, Now the earth was formless, empty, and darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters, okay? So the waters there is connected with this idea of, of darkness, formless, chaos, emptiness. Right, right away we see that theme. Uh, in the story of Jonah, right, we know about this great fish that comes and swallows him up. The fish doesn't represent chaos. The fish doesn't represent brokenness. What represents that? The ocean that he jumps into, the sea, he jumps overboard into the ocean and the sea, representing the chaos and the brokenness and the sin and and all of that. And the fish, man, he gets a bad rap. That fish saved his life, right? The fish is not the bad guy here, okay? It's the the ocean and the sea that represents this darkness that Jonah's wrestling with. Uh, One more story in the story of Exodus. uh, God parts the Red Sea. The Red Sea is what's keeping the people of God separate from being able to get away from their captivity in Egypt. And so when God parts the Red Sea, it's symbolic for God removing the barrier of the chaos, the brokenness, the injustice, and all of that so that they could get to freedom. Once again, we see that in Scripture, the waters typically represent chaos and evil and brokenness. So I would say that this theme in Scripture fits pretty well with our quote that I have heard over and over over the last couple of years about how we're all in the same stormy ocean, but we're not in the same boat. Because the stormy ocean in that metaphor, of course, is also representing chaos and brokenness and and struggle. The human's response to the storm and the chaos in Scripture, when you read through that, the different stories, and there's many, many stories as you read through, now you'll always remember. I wonder if this is an example, when I'm reading this in Scripture, of the waters representing the chaos and the brokenness. And and whenever that happens, the human's response is all over the place, okay? Aren't we always all over the place, humans? So the humans in Scripture are all over the place, just like we are all over the place when it comes to what we face in life. But we also see something in Scripture, and that is that God is the one who has power over the water, over the storm. God is the one who has authority and power over the brokenness and over the chaos. Job 9, 8, and some of you know the story of Job, it says he alone stretches out the heavens and God treads on the waves of the sea. Do you see how we need to understand that meaning? Like God treads on the waves of the sea. God is so powerful, he walks on top of that chaos and he walks on top of that, that brokenness. I'm going to read Psalm 77 because it's so beautiful, and maybe you've read this psalm before, but now read it with the idea that the waters represent the brokenness and the chaos that we face in our life. So I'm going to start in verse 13. Your ways, God, are holy. What God is as great as our God? You are the God who performs miracles. You display your power among the people. With your mighty arm, you redeemed your people, the descendants of Jacob and Joseph. The waters saw you, God, remember this, the waters saw you and writhed. The very depths were convulsed. The clouds poured down water and heavens resounded with thunder. Your arrows flashed back and forth. Your thunder was heard in the whirlwind. Your lightning lit up the world. The earth trembled and quaked. Your path led through the sea. There's God walking through the treading on the sea again your way through the mighty waters, though your footprints were not seen. God is so powerful here, and, and the, the understanding of the waters as, as dangerous and darkness and chaos, and, and God treads upon the sea. This is the God that we serve. When we're being tossed back and forth by the wind and the waves, we follow a God who has power over the storm. So we've seen as we've been going through the book of Matthew this whole year, if you're new with us, we've been in Matthew since the beginning of January, and we're taking this close look at the story of Jesus told through his disciple Matthew. And in the book of Matthew, we see two distinct stories about storms on the sea. One of them we already talked about a few weeks ago, and it's in Matthew 8, when there's a storm that comes and the, the disciples are on a boat and Jesus is napping in the boat, (laughs) and they have to wake him up, and he, with just a word, calms the the chaos and and all that's happening around him. So remember, in that story, uh, the waters thematically represent chaos, darkness, and brokenness, and Jesus is very clearly having authority over that, because with just a few words, the wind and the waves die down. And so today I want to focus on the second story of stormy waters, and this is when Jesus walks on water. Some of you might be familiar with this story. I think we might unpack some things maybe that we haven't focused on in the same way in the past, but we're going to be in chapter 14 of Matthew. So keep this, this, uh, we call it a hermeneutic, keep this hermeneutic in mind, that the waters represent something very deep, and it's showing that when Jesus walks on the water, it's a display of his authority. It's a display of his power. But there's also something else I want you to notice. When Jesus walks on water, he is making a, a very distinct comment about his identity. Because There is something happening when he's walking on the water that the people who understood the Hebrew scriptures might have put together when they listened to these words from Matthew. In scripture, Moses can raise a staff and part the Red Sea. In scripture, Jonah can survive the ocean in the belly of a fish, but only God walks on water. And so when Jesus does this, he is saying something about who he is. Just like I read in this Old Testament Psalms, your path led through the sea, your way through the mighty waters. Job says God treads on the waves of the sea. Only God walks on water. And in this story, Jesus isn't merely pulling out some cool miracle like, watch guys, I can walk on water. He is saying something very clear about who he is. And so as we read here in Matthew 14, I want you to keep that in mind. Now, I also want you to keep in mind how the humans in the story respond to this reality. How do the humans respond to the the stormy seas? Because I think we might resonate with their response to some extent. So I'm going to start in verse 22, and I'll read uh, just the first couple verses. Immediately, Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to the other side while he dismissed the crowd. So he's just been with the crowd. After he dismissed them, he went up on a mountainside by himself to pray. Later that night, he was there alone. So here we go. We've got this opportunity for Jesus to get away by himself. Why does Jesus want to get away by himself? If you just look at the context, you'll see why. You'll see that his cousin John had been killed by Herod. John the Baptist's life had been taken. And it says that in chapter 14 that Jesus wants to get some time away to process that. But the crowds follow him, and that's when we see the feeding of the 5,000. Like the immediate needs of the people uh, came into view, and so he needed to meet that need. He felt compelled to meet that need. And so now the crowds have been sent away, and he finally gets his time to go out and to, to reflect on the reality that he's gone through this grief, and he's gone through this loss. Have you been there in life where you just desperately needed some space to grieve and to process, but you couldn't get away from the crowds? I mean, the crowds might look like toddlers or teenagers or coworkers, right? But you just need some space. I think a lot of us have been there. It reminds me of these memes that have been going around. Maybe some of you saw them. Look, like I, I put, put two of my favorite up here. These memes like, 2022, me still processing 2021. Like, the wave is about to hit you. Or, the, my, you know, I love friends. Uh, me still processing 2020, 2021, 2022. Does anybody resonate with the idea that we haven't had enough space to process what's happened before something else is going down? Okay, so that's, this is I think where Jesus is at, honestly. The, the, he needs to get some time, and he finally gets the time. But as he is at alone on the mountaintop, something happens and a storm comes up on the sea. and we see in verse 25 or in verse 24, and the boat was already a considerable distance from land, but it was buffeted by the waves and the wind against it. And so he's getting his time away on the mountain, but they're on their own on the boat. Now, it's pretty common for storms to just kind of spring up on the Sea of Galilee. So the fact that that happens twice in Matthew, it, it wouldn't be shocking to people who understand the context, because that often happened. It's what made being a fisherman or, or doing other roles like that kind of dangerous at times. And so here they are in another tough situation, okay? Let me read again, starting in verse 25. Shortly before dawn, Jesus went out to them walking on the lake. When the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified it's a ghost! They said, and they cried out in fear. But Jesus immediately said to them, Take courage, it is I. Don't be afraid. Right, okay, so as if it wasn't enough that you're in a boat and you're very vulnerable, and the wind and the waves are hitting the side of the boat, now you might see a ghost, okay? This is where they're at. The same thing I was just talking about, like it's just compounding, right? So they're already afraid. Now they're even more afraid. And the first response from these disciples we see is that they're worried, okay? So if we're asking the question, how do we see the disciples respond? The first thing I want us to notice is that when it comes to the stormy waters, the the disciples are worried. They're anxious. They're fearful. I think a lot of us can resonate with that. When it comes to the stormy waters, the disciples are worried. That's the first response that I see. Now, Jesus' response to their worry and fear is very clear here. He says, Take courage, it is I, don't be afraid. Now, the way Jesus here says, It is I, could also be translated, I am. And this is another gesture where Jesus is articulating that he is God, he is the Messiah. When he says, I am, he's hearkening back to Exodus where God speaks through a burning bush to Moses and and Moses is like, who am I supposed to say that you are? And, And God says, I am. I am the great I am, the, the, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so here Jesus is walking on water, something only God does, and he's saying, I am this very famous name of God in the Hebrew scriptures. But this symbolism is totally lost on the disciples because they are freaking out. Okay, they're too worried to notice this poetic thing that Jesus is doing here that we now get to read in the book of Matthew. Let's continue on to see what happens next in verse 28. So, Jesus says, take courage, it is I, don't be afraid. And then, Lord, if it is you, Peter replied, tell me to come to you on the water. Come, Jesus said. Then Peter got down out of the boat, walked on the water and came towards Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and began to sink and cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. You of little faith, he said, why did you doubt? This is this interaction that he has with Peter. Peter is, what is Peter doing here? Peter is testing Jesus, isn't he? If it's you, then. And I think some of us can resonate with that when we're wrestling with our faith and trying to understand God. Like, hey, if it's you, then, and then we fill in the blank. And in this situation, Peter says, if it's you, then tell me to come out on the water. If you're not a ghost, if it's actually you, Jesus, Now, they've spent much time with Jesus, so here he is hollering out at this figure saying, if it's you, tell me to come out to you on the water. Now, there's been a lot of speculation about this moment of Peter getting out of the boat. It's become a symbolic thing in a lot of ways. There's been songs written about it. Um, There's been books written about it. Um, One of the most famous books, a pastor wrote, and this is phrase, if you want to walk on water, you have to get out of the boat. And I think it's like an inspirational phrase. So you can get like this print. Look, if you want to walk on water, you have to get out of the boat. This pastor John Ortberg wrote it. And doesn't that look inspirational? Like I'm going to walk out into the pink sunset water with confidence. But there's something a little messed up about this story, right? I mean, no offense to whoever made this, you know, print. But it's not a sunset, okay? It's very clear that the storm is still happening. It, it's not that... Peter's like, here. this could be fun. Let's see if I can walk on water too. This would be, you know, this glassy experience that you see, and this is not what's happening. Perhaps this picture's not quite right because the storm has not died down. And I just want to point something out. It wasn't Jesus' idea for Peter to get out of the boat. That was Peter's idea, all right? And if we read the story of Peter, he's actually one of the main characters in Matthew, you see that the guy's a little bit impulsive, okay? This is Peter's idea. It sounds like an idea that I would have, to be honest, okay? Like, oh, okay, like I haven't really thought this through yet, but like I'll get out and like let's just see what happens. Like this is Peter's idea. And I just want to point out that if it was Jesus' idea, it would seem like Jesus is just wanting to add to Peter's trauma, don't you think? This is not Jesus' idea. This is Peter's idea. And he says, Lord, if it's you, tell me to come out to you on the water. And my perspective is this. And then there's different perspectives on this. But my perspective is this. Peter didn't suggest this test from a place of deep faith. I want to suggest that that Peter suggested this test out of a place of deep doubt. That he wanted proof, right? He's saying, prove it to me. And Jesus meets Peter in his doubt and invites him to come out on the water. But when Peter gets out of the boat, guess what gets out of the boat with him? His worries, his fear, his anxiety, it's still there. And so when the wind and the waves come, as you know, the story goes, uh, he starts to sink. And as he starts to sink, uh, Jesus grabs him and he pulls him back into the boat to safety. And it's not until they get into the boat that the waves die down. Now, Jesus doesn't need to offer a verbal command this time. The storm just ceases immediately. So, back to this well, how do we see the humans reacting? When it comes to stormy waters, the disciples are worried, and Peter wavered. Peter wavers. Jesus says to him, You of little faith, why did you doubt? Now, I don't think that Jesus is simply questioning the moment that Peter started to fall into the water. I think Jesus is asking a question about why didn't you believe me when I said it was me? <laughs> like he's asking him a good question. Peter's doubt and his little faith is what caused him to step out of the boat, not his great faith that we sometimes tell about this story and want him to be celebrated for. I think it would be a mistake, though, to hear Jesus questioning as a harsh rebuke. I think he really wants Peter and the others listening, of course, Matthew heard this, I think he really wants them to think about it we sometimes think, why did you doubt? Almost like this, this harsh rebuke. But could it be that Jesus said, why did you doubt? I want you to think about that. Why? Why did you think I was a ghost? That's not even something that Jewish cultures believe. Like what's going on that we don't believe in ghosts, man? Why did you doubt? When I'm struggling and I'm going through just like a lot of deep emotions of grief or anger, my, my therapist is always like, let's be curious about that. And I'm like, no, I just, I'm gonna just going to be angry. <laughs> and my therapist is like, no, I want you to wonder about that. Be curious about what's coming up inside of you. And I think this is what Jesus is doing here. Jesus is saying, why? You need to wonder about that, Peter. You've been with me all this time, yet you're still questioning, and I want you to wonder about that. The, the, the word doubt here in Matthew is diazo, which is best translated as waver in your trust. Jesus is saying, why did you waver in your trust? We've actually been in this situation before with the boat, but why did you waver in your trust? That's a good question, isn't it? I think Jesus genuinely wanted them to wonder about this. And, and we don't see Jesus giving them a lecture then about why they shouldn't doubt, do they? We don't see him going on to say like, and here's why you should, here's my, here's my really good explanation about why you should never doubt. He doesn't do that. He just asks a question. And then he gets into the boat and he calms the storm around them. Jesus invites them to wonder, to be curious about their doubt, to be curious about their wavering. So what are these reactions we see? When it comes to the stormy waters, the disciples are worried. I think we can resonate with that. Peter is wavering, which I think lots of us can resonate with as well. And Jesus invites them to wonder, to wonder about that. Let me finish reading this passage for today, uh, picking it up in verse 32. And when they climbed into the boat, Jesus and Peter, the wind died down. Then those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly you are the Son of God. When they had crossed over and they landed at when they uh, and the, when the men of that place recognized Jesus, they sent word to all the surrounding country, and people brought all their sick to him and begged him to let the sick just touch the edge of his cloak, and all who touched it were healed." These desperate people aren't struggling with the same type of doubt in that moment because they're like, if I can just touch him, that's where I need to be. I think it's so interesting here because you've got the worry, you've got the wavering, you've got Jesus inviting them to wonder, but you also see that at least for some of the disciples, their worry turns into worship. And what's so interesting about this account here in Matthew is that in the first 14 chapters of Matthew, we don't see anybody worship Jesus. Like, this is the first time the disciples have worshipped Jesus. Think about that. They have seen him perform so many miracles. He's he's healed the sick. He's uh, made blind people able to see. He's raised the dead back to life. He has caused the demon-possessed to be set free. He has provided for thousands of hungry people. But Jesus helps them survive a boat ride, and they're finally ready to worship him. That's where they're at. And before we get too proud, like, that's where we're at sometimes, isn't it? In the stormy waters, they were worried. They wavered. And Jesus invited them to wonder and worship. But it was only after the storm died down that they worshiped. Did you notice that? It was after the storm that the boat was, I mean, because let me just be honest, like this is a triggering story for me because I would be puking. Like, I would be actually throwing up, okay? I wouldn't even be, I'd be like, take me now. I can't, like, this is, this is terrible. And so the, the storm finally dies down. And you know how it is. It probably still felt like they were moving, even though they weren't. And then they worship him. Do you see these responses in your own life? Because I know I do. I see times in my life where I'm worried, where I'm wavering. And I see times when I'm wondering and I'm worshiping. In the stormy waters of life, we might find ourselves worried and wavering, right? Now, I would venture to say that most of us have faced deep uncertainty and worry and, and, and have faced deep fear and anxiety, right? Most of us have experienced that in our life. I would say that most of us have wavered in our trust in God, have, have doubted or questioned our faith or questioned God in our life. Can we just normalize that for a minute? Because what I notice is that when we're going through deep worry or deep wavering, it feels like you're the only one, doesn't it? Like nobody else is dealing with this. But I've been around the block enough and I've heard enough stories and experience in my own life. Most of us go through those seasons. So let's just normalize that for a minute and just say that even though we feel like we're alone at times, that is not true. Who's telling us that we're alone? Most of us have been there, haven't we? At times in our life. In this story, the humans are all over the place emotionally, right? But what does Jesus do? What does Jesus do in this story? He moves towards them. He calmly and consistently moved towards the worried and wavering disciples. I mean, you can just see this so consistently. If you just look through the passage I just read, Look at what Jesus does. Jesus went out to them walking on the, on the lake. Jesus said to them, take courage. Jesus says, come, when Peter tests him. Jesus reached out his hand and caught, caught Peter. And then we see in that little end there that Jesus continues to heal. He goes in and continues to do the miracles he's doing. He didn't give the disciples a time out because of their doubt. Do you see that? He didn't say, y'all on a timeout because you need to work on that. No, he invited them to wonder and then they just kept being on with it. In the stories of Jesus in the Gospels, whenever someone is wavering or doubting, whenever someone is confused or unsure, Jesus moves towards them and not away from them. Jesus moves towards, not away, from those who are worried and wavering. Can we just have like a little short family meeting for a second? Let's just have a family meeting. The way we as Jesus followers, the family of God, right, family meeting, have approached doubt, as well as those who are experiencing doubt, those who are questioning, has been so different than the way that Jesus approaches it, hasn't it? That's why we have to have a little family meeting for a second, because what's going on? We're filled with so much anxiety about our own doubt, aren't we? We're filled with so much anxiety about the doubt that's happening in the people around us or the people that we love. Jesus is not anxious about our anxiety. But we are (laughs) about each other's anxiety and fear and questions and doubts. Jesus is not anxious about our anxiety. Jesus can handle the questions. And and I think Jesus invites us to wonder about it, as he did with Peter, to stay curious, to keep asking questions. You might have experienced going through a season of worry or wavering in your life, and the people you thought were going to be there for you withdrew. And that is a painful experience that some of us have faced. But Jesus doesn't move away from those who are wavering and doubting. He moves towards them. The feeling of being abandoned or rejected or shut down by other humans is incredibly painful. And I I don't want to minimize that. And I personally especially feel the weight of what it's meant when church leaders in roles like mine are are not representing Jesus when it comes to, to supporting those who are questioning to supporting those who are in times of uncertainty and wavering. So often, we have failed to make room for the questions, and I'm sorry. Some of you know that a few years ago, I wrote a book called Stay Curious, and the subtitle was How Questions and Doubts Can Save Your Faith. We've always got copies in the back if anybody wants one. But in the research for that book, what I discovered was something so encouraging and meaningful, if you ask me, and that is that those who press into their doubts and press into their questions rather than running from them are the people who end up having the most deep, meaningful, and vibrant faith in the long run. This is the statistically true, that the people who don't just run away from the tension and the anxiety of the questions and doubts, but actually press into them, which is hard to do, and steps into that and wrestle with that, those people in the long run are the people who say, who, who self, self-proclaim that they feel that their faith is more meaningful and vibrant and deep. Now, sure, they also say their faith has expanded, has shifted, has been transformed. It's not the same as what it was before. But often the questions, the doubts, and the wavering lead to deeper faith, not a total loss of faith. You might be more sure of less things, but there's assurance, not certainty, but assurance that comes from the wrestle, from the process. And I've had people ask me, as a pastor, are you concerned that people are going to question their faith? What if, what if people doubt, pastor? Are you concerned about that? And I would say now, having listened to so many stories, having experienced my own uh, times of doubt and questioning and having done the research that I did for this book, I'm at this point more concerned that people won't ask questions <laughs> and people won't face doubt head on because I know that pressing in can lead to integrating your faith in a way that, that's deeper than you've ever had it before. And I've experienced that on a personal level when I've wrestled with the doubts and questions in my life. But I think there is a a distinction between those who uh, wrestle with the questions and doubts, those who end up Moving through that to a place of thriving and meaning and and depth of relationship with God. And and there's still questions. They're not all answered. But there's this place where people might arrive where they're just in the sense of assurance like I described. And then there's others who I notice who end up in this kind of never-ending cycle of disillusionment where they're just consistently unable to recover from the questions and doubts that they face in their life. Those who I would say feel tormented by them. And there's a difference between these two people. And if I were to say what the difference is, it's whether or not they were willing to keep wondering and to stay curious about what God's doing and about who they are and and about whether or not God exists. I get that. But were they willing to stay curious, recognizing that this is a lifelong pursuit? Because the people willing to stay curious go through seasons of questions and doubts. But they're the ones who describe that sense of a vibrant faith in their life. The people who stay curious. I'm going to have the worship team come up. We've we've lived through the stormy waters of the last two years, even though we've been in different boats, haven't we? I mean, we're still here. Some people aren't. But we've lived through this stormy waters, and worry has been a part of most of our lives. And wavering has been a part of many of our lives. And when we find ourselves worried or wavering, what I think we see in this story is that we are invited to respond with wonder and worship. And I'm going to say wonder or worship. Because the truth is, is that many of us, we would love to be the people that worship God in the midst of the storm, wouldn't we? That sounds very holy. And, and it would be really great to be the person that in the midst of the storm, I'd be throwing up, but in the midst of the storm, we still worship God. But the truth is is that for a lot of us, that doesn't always feel possible, does it? It feels painful to try to figure out how to muster up worship in the midst of the storm. And in this story, at least in this story, they didn't do that until the storm was over. And so if you're currently in a place where worship is a painful response for you, I want to tell you this. The rest of us can worship on your behalf. You have permission to just rest in the Holy Spirit, to just rest in community. This is what community is supposed to be for each other. And and if that's where you're at, then your invitation maybe isn't to worship, it's to wonder. It's to try to stay curious, just like my therapist is encouraging me to do, to be curious about where you're at, to slowly let the Holy Spirit into that, even if it's difficult at first. Your questions, your doubts, your painful stories, they are welcome here. We can hold you up when you don't have the strength. That's what community is supposed to be for. And can we all work on bringing our anxiety to Jesus so we don't project it all over each other? Can we do that so that we can face the things in our own life but also meet each other with love and support and not just project anxiety on each other? When we find ourselves worried or wavering, we are invited to respond with wonder or worship. And so as we go into this time of worship, if you're someone who, you know, you need to use this time for wondering and you just need to reflect and and joining in in song is not where you're at, feel free to do that. And if you're ready to worship, know that you might be doing that on behalf of others who can't do that right now. That's the invitation as we go into this time of worship.